hey, I'm Nevin and I'm cooking up a podcast. Each week, I'm talking to people about food and cooking, making some recipes and going on some adventures. You can find it all at nevintaylorcooks.com. This week, I'm talking with the James Beard award-winning best chef in the Northeast, Jamie Bissonette. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 11. It's been quite the trip. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening again. Please, if you're enjoying all of this stuff, share it with some friends. Tell some people about it. Start getting some vibes going. I'm having the time of my life making this stuff. I'm meeting and engaging with people that I've looked up to, admired, people who have mentored me uh, throughout my career, and just uh, people who I respect, you know, talking about food, cooking, life. It's a beautiful thing. This week, we got an update. We got another edition of What's in the Woods with Tyler Akabane. What's in the woods, Tyler? Um, we're looking for wine caps today. We've got wine caps. We found them. We picked some mad wine caps. <laughs> what are wine caps? <laughs> uh, wine caps is a saprophytic fungus. It um, decomposes things like wood chips and mulch, any sort of debris, wood debris. And uh, you can find them in all around areas that have lots of wood chips, like flower, flower, flower gardens and beds and things like that. It's a spring fungus. It's one of the like big spring mushrooms. How do you like to cook it? I like a grill. I like it grilled. Um, similar, not so similar to like a portini. Porta- I would portobello. say like a portobello. Yeah, portobello. treat them like a portobello. You'll be good. They get like a big round of caps. So sometimes you can stuff them when they're bigger. Make a stuffed mushroom. We already talked about stuffed mushrooms before, but, you know, if you're into that sort of thing. It's now, last time we did this, it was mid-April. Yeah. Now it's mid-May. Yeah. Season's crazy. Spring's the craziest season. Things just, everything's popping off, going good, going bad so fast. Different seasons in, like, short drives. We drove, like, two hours west last week, and, like, the season was, like, several weeks behind us. So it's just wild that in such, like, a short drive, you can find different seasons. What, uh... Well, we, you guys were looking for more elves, which is so, like, broader than maybe what we found. I see it. I, I know. Okay, so there's a, that's a really good what's in the woods, and maybe that's better. Uh, morels, yeah. Really hard fungus to find around in the here. northeast. Yeah, really difficult to find in our area. That's why I had to go west for them. But right now... In season. It's beautiful. In season. Yeah. It's fun to go and get them. They're really hard to find, really hard to see, really hard to know the secrets. I'm not going to divulge them. Yeah. But people, if they really want to, they can find that information out. It's been there. It took me years to find them. Going out year after year, looking at different spots, looking at different trees. And now I'm starting to acquire a few spaces. We've gone out with friends. We found some new spots. So you got your secret spots that yes. you go back to year after year. Yeah. To yep. find the morels. Yeah. And we found at least two different species of morels too, which is kind of cool. We found kind of like a quote unquote black morel and a blonde morel. 
Usually blonde. That's mostly what we find. But we got them both. Cool. It was really fun. It's fun lining up the seasons. Like, what's in season here? Like, dandelions are all puffed out now. Yeah, who went to seed. Yeah, trying to line those up. Like, what does it mean when the dandelions are gone? Like, what else is in season? What's out of season? How does that line up? Yeah. There's a word for that, but I can't remember it. So I... Okay, so morels, wine caps, which yep. we just got. Pheasants back. That's the third mushroom. Third of the spring trio for me. I know oysters is in there also, but like I don't... Other names for pheasants back, there's more. Dryad saddle. Dryad saddle. And those grow, like, on a tree. Yeah. Like, they're a shelf mushroom. Yeah. And I, swear, I, I really thought there was one here. I know there, there could be one. But uh, yeah, shelf mushroom sticking out. You gotta get them when they're really young or else they're too fibrous. They've got that nice feathery pattern on top, which yeah. is why they get the name pheasants back, because it has a sort of like feathered pattern. Cucumbery aroma. Cucumbery. Like, yeah, very cucumbery. Yeah. Cucumbery. <laughs> There's a lot of cucumbery things. What? <laughs> What's that face for? <laughs> She's grilling. I think she's calling bullshit on your cucumber mushroom. Uh, yeah, very cucumber. There's a bunch of cucumbery things. Yeah, it's not right a cucumber now. aromas out there. Spring, that thing spring we just, is cucumber. That uh, bull rush was cucumbery. Cucumber stuff, man. Spring is cucumber. Yeah. Cucumbers are spring. Borage, like that's like the most cucumber. Oh yeah, super cucumbery. There's other ones. I'm not thinking of them, but it's like weird. Like why are there so many fucking cucumber flavored things? It must be something. It's not cucumber flavor. There's a flavor that cucumber tastes like. What else we got? So that's three mushrooms that are in the woods right now. Yeah. What about greens? Everything went like so fast, so fast. from small to way overgrown. Knotweed was like, gone. I think it was harvestable for like a day. Yeah, it was gone. You'll find like other spots also though. You'll find like the late in spots. Different, yeah. And that was also Western Mass. They're totally. like all short there when it was like all bolted here. And here like the nettles, they're starting to go to flower. Still got a little bit of time on nettles because those are in patches too. Yeah. That aren't as. Shady areas. Yeah. Less shady. Um... Goose's foot is coming. Goose's foot? Yeah. We haven't heard that one yet. Again, goose foot. Lamb's quarters, same thing. Lamb's quarters coming in now. Okay. Goose foot. Yeah, same thing. Lamb's quarters, goose foot, just different name. Oh. What do, what, what do they look like? What, how do we find it? Uh, it what has do you this like really interesting shape that's kind of like a goose's foot. <laughs> <laughs> and it has this, like, dusty thing. This dusty white color when the leaves are emerging. If you look in the middle, they, like, look like they're, like, someone powder them with flour or sugar or something. Huh. Once you see it, you'll know it. Um, I'm looking for it. I don't see any. Maybe we'll see some on the walk back. I bet. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. What else? Um, Nettles are still going. Nettle yep. Malfati recipe's up. Did you watch it? I haven't seen it yet. You didn't watch the video? I haven't seen it yet. You weren't one of the eight people? My YouTube channel's <laughs> blowing up. I'm gonna watch it as soon as I get home. Right, then maybe <laughs> we'll get to double digits. Sick. Flowers. Yeah, flowers, what violets. What about black locusts? That might be coming. Yeah, that'll be coming really soon. This could be it any day now. Yeah. But I feel it tastes like, like peas. Yeah, I love that. It tastes like peas. It's really good. But so do you stop taking dandelions now that they've yeah. seeded? Yeah, maybe just the flowers. Yeah. The flowers and the tops. Dandelions are really cool because it tastes like honey. But it's not that they taste like honey. It's that honey tastes like dandelions. We talked about this already. I love that. Isn't that cool? It's, <laughs> it's like just came first. like a shift in your brain. It's like you eat the honey and you're like, oh. Tastes like honey, and then you eat a dandelion. You're like, oh, it tastes like honey. But why does honey taste like a dandelion? Because the bees got the nectar from the dandelions, and then they made the honey with it. So you're, when you taste honey, you're tasting dandelions. Betty has the nettle patch. Good. Still going. Still going. What are you gonna do with all those nettles? I'm gonna dry them and make tea. Nettle tea. Have you seen, make have you seen my people tea. making the nettle matcha? No. Grinding them up. There's thistle back there. 
metal mine. Just like blasting it in the food processor until it turns into a powder and then... And then just yeah, put that with warm water. So I'm going to post a video up this week too. There'll be a What's in the Woods video. So if you want to see some of the stuff that we're talking about, What's in the Woods, you'll be able to check it out on my YouTube channel or you can find it through my website, um, nevintaylorcooks.com or nevintaylor on YouTube. Um, so that's that. If you want to find out more about what Tyler has going on, you can follow him on Instagram at mushroomsformyfriends, or you can go to his website, mushroomsformyfriends.com, um, for updates on upcoming walks and dinners that all have to do with foraging, um, local, and wild foods, and that sort of stuff. He's got a ton of stuff going on. We might be doing a dinner together soon, um, so stay tuned for all that stuff, but thanks, Tyler. We'll check you again soon. This week, have a pretty big, pretty big guest, uh, Jamie Bissonette. I worked for him at Toro right when Copa opened, and then I worked at Copa for a little bit too. I cooked with him. He taught me a lot um, about being a cook, working at some really high quality really fast-paced restaurants that were very demanding. It was a ton of work. We worked a lot, um, and it went by in like a flash. You know, Jamie uh, has a crazy amount of energy. He works really hard. He was always the... He was always grabbing the deck brush at the end of the night to scrub down. Um, he was in it. He was in it with you, and he he was faster than you. He was better than you, and uh, he just wanted everyone else to be good who was around him and show them and teach them. Toro, which started in Boston, now there's an outpost in New York City. He got a killer review in the New York Times, which we talk about. They, uh, him and Ken, his business partner, Ken Oranger, they went on and opened up a Toro in Bangkok and a Toro in Dubai. Copa, little Italian spot in the South End, make all the pastas. Um, you know, they've won all the awards for that place to best restaurant, best Italian restaurant, whatever. Um, killer stuff. I think three star review, three and a half, three star review in the globe. The newest restaurant is Little Donkey, which is in Cambridge. I think it opened up in 2016. That one, the Boston Globe best restaurant of the year. You know, it's just like a continual hit maker, just going, going, going. I worked with them for like three years at Toro and Copa. And I can say that he is a cook's cook. He hustles. He's faster than you. He works harder than you. I've never once heard him complain about work or anything like that. He reads and researches about food. He's a super nerd um, when it comes to uh, food literature and, and different cultures and cultural dishes. He's always into it, always interested, always working really, really hard. He, he leads by example. Like He's always in there. He's always in it, the first one to, to just get into it. 
and yeah, I mean that, that stuff has stuck with me, um, forever, you know, just trying to be better. He, I mentioned in the intro, one best chef in the Northeast by the James Beard Association, uh, back when I was working there, he won uh, the People's Best New Chef in Food and Wine magazine, which was the first year that they awarded that. He's been on Chopped and won. He won the Cochon 555 um, Nose to Tail uh, Heritage Breed Pig um, competition. He's written a cookbook, the new charcuterie. He's just on fire. Like He's just doing everything. Dreams are coming true. Very grateful for him sitting down and chatting with me. So let's get into it. This is me and Jamie. What's up? My name is Jamie Bissonette. I'm a Leo. I've got baby blue eyes and I like long walks on the beach. Grew up just outside of Hartford, Connecticut. Moved around after that, and I've been in Boston for about 20 years. I started cooking in high school in the rural Connecticut, a little town called Canton. Um, would cook for my bandmates when we would go on tour. I would cook at this like shitty like uh, IGA, Independent Grocery Association grocery store in the deli, and I just like I fell in love with like you know, I vividly remember the first time I like looked up and saw a ladle. I was like, man, all this stainless steel is really cool. I want to be in here. This is cool. And then I didn't have to bag groceries and talk to guests anymore and I was like oh this is even cooler like my really close friend growing up Chris uh, Chris Patera his dad was from Italy had a restaurant called Ristorante Italia it was like a neighborhoody kind of spot we'd go in there and like I'd get to go into the kitchen I remember seeing this guy breaking down a, like something I can only imagine it was like a steamship round like this huge like huge piece of meat and like pounding it out into something and like the, the pizzas would come out we would go there on special occasions for dinner and like they had the kids menu but I would always order out the dinner menu and I just remember always loving food so it was like just seemed like a natural progression yeah and then from there you went to Florida you went to school in Florida yeah so I was touring with punk bands uh, in high school playing bass and uh, I stopped remembering the songs and like kind of like stopped practicing because whenever we'd have a break I'd like go and find food and cook for us and I loved cooking so uh, eventually I got kicked out of high school I did got my GED and I needed to go somewhere to get away from where I was because my mom kicked me out and I didn't have any money so I was like all right you know what I'm gonna go be a chef and uh, I just turned 17 years old when I decided and uh, about five months later got into Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale in uh, their culinary school and I was like well it doesn't snow there it's pretty far away from Connecticut and I had some friends that lived in Florida some old hardcore kids that had moved down there and they had a good hardcore scene so I was like yeah I'll go down there I can still go see shows and that'll be that and I went down there when I was 17. I went to culinary school worked at some pretty great places I worked at this one Italian restaurant it's very famous Um, you know you learn a lot of volume um i don't know that i learned any scratch cooking there but i mean you know it's it's a very famous restaurant called macaroni grill uh, i think there's like a thousand of them around the country wow. same owners as chilies okay. cool. <laughs> it was basically like a, a nicer version a more expensive version of the olive garden yeah. i worked there for like six months and then i worked at some other decent restaurants i worked at a catering company that that taught me um how to make things happen and then I left and came to came you know, graduated, worked at a restaurant for a little bit, was living on South Beach for a little bit, outside of South Beach for a bit, and I was like, you know what, it's time to go back to New England. And uh, packed up my car, drove straight to Boston, came up here. 
I moved up here and I wanted to work for Jasper White, but Jasper's had just closed. So I got to stage at Jasper's a couple times before it closed, coming up from to visit people and go see hardcore shows in like 95, 96. I got here in uh, early 97, February of 97. I wanted to work for him and he had just taken over as the corporate chef for a restaurant group. So I applied, I got a job there and I worked at their outlet uh, right in the Prudential Center. Uh, I worked there for seven months, which I outlasted him. He only worked there for six months. Uh, I got to meet him once. Uh, he didn't remember me from my stage. And uh, whatever, I got to watch him. Like, they filmed, like, remember that show, Great Chefs of the West? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. So they did Great Chefs, for the American version of it. And they filmed him grilling. It was that legal seafood in the Prudential Center. Yeah. I worked with this guy. And I worked with some pretty great, pretty talented guys. Like, these, these guys were old schoolers who, you know, had worked into kitchen management jobs for a company. They hadn't gone public yet. And the food was in, you know, it was coming from commissaries. But we did some scratch stuff. We did some specials. You know, it wasn't like mind-blowingly awesome, but the chefs that were there were talented. Mm-hmm. So, like this guy Rich Vellante, he's now there. He's now like their uh, executive chef. I think he's like he's a partner, some very high up. He's super awesome, but he taught me so much. Like he would come over and say things like, "Listen, you don't need to do this here because this is what we do, but why don't you come in a half an hour early tomorrow? I want to teach you something. You seem like a kid who wants to learn." And then there's this kid Charlie, and then this kid Franz. Franz was a Haitian. He like worked his way up from prep cook to kitchen manager and then he ran their commissary and it was like seeing all that stuff I was like you know I don't want to cook this kind of food but working there was had such a great impact on organization speed and volume and quality um, and I still have a lot of respect for those restaurants and so I mean I learned a lot at that restaurant it was great um, but I got into too many fights I didn't have any money got my, my heart broken for the first time from some girl and I was like ah, I'm going back to Hartford so I went to Hartford for about two years Worked down there for Billy Grant, uh, Brico. He was opening up um, Grant's right when I left, which ended up being a really great restaurant. I worked uh, there. I worked at this place, Cavies, out in Manchester, which is like fantastic. It's always had the, for years, it had the highest Zagat rating in all of, all of Connecticut. It had a 27, 26, 27. It was like old school Italian upstairs. And then the downstairs was like Chateau French, Tableside, Giridon, everything. Nice. You know, it's like place in, in Manchester, Connecticut where they were getting in fresh Dover sole and like spot prawns and like things that you wouldn't expect. It was great. Um, and then I went back to Brico for a little bit and Billy sat me down one day and he's like, you should probably, uh, you should probably leave Hartford. You're, you're a townie and you're, you're doing nothing but, but plateauing as a cook and fighting. So you should probably get out of here because you're either going to start to regress as a cook and become one of those guys who becomes a journeyman line cook who's getting line cook jobs at 50 years old and can't hold their own and going to jail and substance abuse problems. Or you're going to go somewhere else where people are better than you and you're going to rise to that and you'll get better than them. But here, you're not going to get any better. You're getting worse. And I was like... Hmm. Yeah, I could have two reactions. One reaction was like, fuck you, motherfucker. And the other reaction was like, yeah, you're right. (laughs) So so I was like, yeah, fuck it. And uh, my uncle lived up in Boston and he worked at Silverton as a bartender, which was like the industry hangout back then. Uh, My friend, uh, this guy, Ed Lysak, he was our neighbor growing up. He's like, oh, he went to Bryant. And he's like, oh, this guy was in my frat. He's a chef. You should meet him. So I moved up to Boston with Uncle Will for a little bit and I was going to stage around. And as I got up here, um, 
he was like, hey, you know, Eddie Lizak's friend he used to always tell you about, he's got a restaurant up here. You should go stage with him. I'm like, no, I'm not. There's no way I want to go work at some like shitty bar and grill for some, some jamoke, you know? Like this guy's probably like some sort of butthole. And uh, he's like, no, he's got a restaurant called Cleo. I was like, Eddie Lizak lived with Ken Oranger? So I was like, I want to stage at Cleo. So I went and did that. Um, they didn't have anything, anything open for me. So I was like, well, I need money. I live up here. I don't have anywhere to work. So he's like, oh, here, meet my friend Jason Santos and Andy Husbands. They were looking for a sous chef. So I worked there for a year at Tremont 647. Uh, from there, I staged around in Marker Valley. It just opened up Pigal. And uh, it was awesome. It, like, I loved it. So I went and worked at Pigal for, ended up there for almost three and a half years. It was like, it was a time where I kind of like wanted to jump around. But this was, you know, back in like late eight, late 90s to early 2000s and you know we didn't have that like ADD that chefs have when it comes to like social media and internet so like if you wanted to know what was happening even from Boston to Cambridge you had to get on a bus if I wanted to know what's happening in New York I either had to wait for the next art culinaire or food arts or I had to go to New York there was like yeah I couldn't go online and look at a photo and it was kind of cool um, I miss those days but I like what's happening now because I think it's changed our industry but um, working with Mark was awesome like he was the first one to like bring me to New York to cook at the Beard House. He was the first one to like introduce me to like other chefs that were that were awesome from other places. And he was always going to do events. He won Food and Wine Best New Chef uh, at that restaurant when I was his Sue. And like when he was doing that stuff, I was back at the restaurant prepping the stuff that he wanted to his specifications and shipping it. And I was just like, I loved it. I was like, man, he's out in Carmel, California, cooking with like all these awesome chefs. And I made that terrine. And I sent him that that this. And I sent him that that. Did I care about the credit? Nah, I never really cared about the credit. Like, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it was just like the satisfaction of knowing that somebody had enough uh, faith in me to let, let me do it. And that like gave me the confidence to keep keep growing as a cook. And you've definitely, it, it, from my personal experience, found a way to be able to connect and make the cooks who are working for you proud of all the stuff that you're doing. My one rule is I never say anybody works for me. I always say we work together because I mean, I'm the, I'm, you remember, I'm the kind of guy where at the end of the night, I'm going to get down on my hands and knees and scrub under. I'm going to scrub the, I'm going to scrub your station better than you scrub your station. Now that, I mean, the last five years have been pretty crazy for you. I mean, James Beard Award, tour of New York was what, five years ago, Bangkok, Dubai, like Little Donkey, like all of those things. So what struggles have come up with trying to like maintain that as you're getting pulled in so many different directions now like you can't you can't go on and work the line as often as you want to well you know for the first year of of Toro New York Ken and I were both on the line five or six days a week. We opened up in September. We got our review on New Year's Eve. Ken, and we were open six days a week then. Ken worked plancha upstairs, plancha uh, with another cook, six days a week without missing a beat. And I worked downstairs expo saute six days a week without missing a beat. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. Like, and it was fun because it was like, oh, Ken and I are both on the line. Like, this is like, this is like, the, you know, everything lining up. And then when, when um, we decided to open up Little Donkey, it was the same thing. But as far as like me being able to like, get get the grunt in, I still find myself going, all right, guys, next week I can work these three days. Mm-hmm. Put me on the schedule. Like, oh, we don't need you. I'm like, well, put me on it anyway. You start setting up the station. I'll work the line all night long. And uh, it's, been, it's been great. The benefit of not being tied to a specific kitchen every day is if shit goes down and I'm, in, and, I'm in, and I'm not in New York at Toro or I'm not doing an event and like somebody will be like, hey, I get a text. Hey, hey, we're really short tonight, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, put me on. Like, all right, we'll put you on Expo and I'll work it. I'm like, no, no. 
put me on the line yeah. and like to walk into one of the restaurants and just know that I can walk on the line and, and still cook with everybody. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We can talk about, I guess, like kind of all the big stuff that's happened in the last five years. I know I mentioned this stuff really quick, oh, but yeah. like maybe some highlights or things that you've been super proud of is, I mean, James Beard Award has got to be like, that's pretty ridiculous. Congratulations. Thanks. I mean, and traveling Dubai, Bangkok, like, I mean, this is the last five years have got to have been insane. The last five years have been a lot, man. Um, review in the New York Times. Like you had a yeah, restaurant real, that opened was, in New York and get a review in the New York. Like that's, that's crazy. That's what I was just dude. about to say. Like for me, I was like, you know, seeing a review in the New York Times and like, it started off like the way that Wells wrote it, it started off really good. You know, people were like, oh, what are, you, what are you guys going for? Three, four stars? I was like, no. Three stars means you're expensive. Four stars means you're too fancy. Like a two star that reads like really well, that people like, that's what keeps people coming in. Like, yeah. the, you know, people don't get that. People are like, oh, but I want to be the best. I'm like, you, 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 you can be the best in a different area and not be the best of another area and still be the best of what you want to be the best of. Does that right. make sense? Like yeah. we're chefs who opened up a restaurant in New York. We're not going for four star fine dining. We're not going for three star. Like three stars would have probably been counterintuitive for us because I think you know, people are like, oh, they have such higher expectations. They beat you up more. And, you know, we're a casual, fun restaurant. So what we were going for is what we got. And yeah. like the day, so we like prepping our asses off, like just getting crushed and kind of loving it. So we have our, I have my phone sitting on a conduit, like a uh, conduit, like light switch in front of my cutting board and I'm prepping and I'm sitting up and like, it was like every like 10 seconds starting at two o'clock, I would like reach up and just swipe my screen on my iPhone down to refresh to see what would pop up. And it was like, mm, swipe, mm, swipe. And then we were all talking about, we we're all talking about it. And like, you could hear everybody in the restaurant was like, you know, a little bit like we weren't like a loud restaurant, but you know how it is. Like you hear like somebody's like, Oh, what are you doing? It was new, and it was new year's Eve. Like we're prepping for new year's Eve. Busy yeah. yeah we're, and we weren't doing, um, we weren't, we we're doing a, two seatings of regular dining. And then it was going to be like a late night new year's Eve party that we sold tickets to. And it was going to be like, and it was just one thing that Ken and I, I think know how to do is throw a party. So right. like, we were like, this is going to be a new year's Eve party. And we were going to be closed the next day it's like so many things were gonna be rad right and uh so like we're all and everybody's like chattering like oh how do you look what is going on hey what's that oh hey do you have any more of this it was like swipe 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 dead silence because everybody was swiping and everybody was like the review was up and he was here oh my god oh my god and I was like I so I grabbed my phone and I start walking out of the kitchen and I'm reading it and I'm walking because I know that Ken was in the office we'll do the same thing with our partners and our general manager and our wine director Caitlin and like everybody was like waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and I'm walking and I'm reading it and I got about you know Coral, New York's got a lot of surface area in the basement. So walking from the kitchen to the office area took about 45 seconds to a minute. And I wasn't walking fast because I was reading and I'm like reading it and I'm reading it. And I'm like, fucking Wells liked it. Oh, he didn't like that. But he didn't dislike it either. He liked it. He liked it. And I didn't read ahead. I was like, I'm going to read this whole thing to find out. And I want to see how I feel. And if it, if I feel good and it's one star, I'm happy. If I feel, if I'm like, man, that was a pretty good review and it's zero stars, I'm probably going to cry. Yeah. But I'm like, if I get, <laughs> if we get one star and it fucking felt good, I'm down. Yeah. And I'm walking and I'm walking and I got to a thing and he goes, and it leaves me with one question. How could a restaurant this big see, serve food this good? And I went, and it was like, that's the exact quote. And I, and I went, 
yes! <laughs> and I get into the room, and like somebody's you know poroning already. We got two stars. It was what we wanted. And then I'm walking back in the kitchen. I grab a bottle of kava. And we're sh- we're sabering, and it was just like. It was awesome. And then that was New Year's Eve. So after the first two seatings, that New Year's Eve party turned into our review party. Right. So that was crazy. Oh, thank God we were closed on New Year's right. Day, man. It was amazing. Yeah, that yeah. must have been a good party. Being Opening up in New York as like a pretty proud Bostonian, um, what was... How was the vibe like? I've heard t- so many stories about like the New York scene versus the Boston scene. And I mean, New York's New York. I wouldn't compare New York to any other p- place in the world because right. it's New York. Yeah. Uh, we were lucky going into it. We had a lot of great friends. We had a lot of people that were like, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I well connected. Yeah, yeah. We, and they were and they were welcoming. People were like, oh yeah, this is great. We want you know we're happy to have you here. This is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was positive, yeah. and uh, this having that support gave us more confidence. That's for sure. So I mean, we felt well supported. Um, definitely, like things in Boston that you take for granted. Like I'm just gonna give one shout out, Specialty Foods Boston. Fuck, I miss you in New York. Oh shit! All right. You know that that company that you can be like, hey, I need this special thing, and you know that they're going to Chinatown to get it for you. Yeah. Or you know they're running to like somewhere to another purveyor to get it for you. In New York, you ask somebody, and they're like that they they stock something that's on their list that they have on a special. Oh, order this for tomorrow. We have it. And you order it, and they like show up. They don't have it. And you call them. You're like, hey, you said you had this on your special list. I called my order in at nine o'clock at night, and I didn't get it. Yeah. And they're like, yep, yeah, sorry. Back ordered, and you're like, well, well, can you can you come back out with it later? The second delivery truck in New York, non-existent. So I went into Little Donkey with my dad, Scotty T. I know Scotty he made, T. He wanted. I was like, he came into town. He never really comes up, and I was like, what do you want to do? He's like, let's go check out uh, Jamie's new spot. What's it called? And I was like, Little Donkey. He's like, are you serious? And I was like, yeah, dad, that's the name of the restaurant. He's like, we gotta go. We gotta go. Yeah. So that's the newest of the restaurants. What's What's the name? And I guess, like, what's the overall Little Donkey vibe? Uh, so Ken and I were, like, we were, you know, two, in two years into uh, New York. We started getting ready to open up Bangkok. We were negotiating Dubai already and, like, starting to talk about design and construction and kitchen stuff. And, um... You know, one day we were talking, I was like, you know, people were like, oh, you guys are going international. And like, you know, like there's definitely, I know that my dad always used to say this. If people aren't talking shit about you for no reason, you're not good enough for what you do. So I get it. Like, you know, making fun of you like, oh, they're going to forget about Boston. And I'm like, I live in Boston. Like this is, I identify with Boston, you know, I would fight for Boston. And I'm like, Ken, people are going to forget about us. And one day he he just goes, we got to open up another restaurant in Boston because we were traveling so much. We have all these ideas. We can't do that food from all over the world in Toro and Copa. We can't do it in New York. We've got to like, we're, these restaurants are going to lose their identity if we become too schizophrenic with the style of cuisine we cook. And I was like, it's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. I'm like, so what do you want to do? He's like, let's open up another restaurant. I'm like, all right, let's find a gritty neighborhood. And like, we talked about where we would want to do it, what concept. And, you know, that of course evolved mm-hmm. or de-evolved depending upon how you look at it and as we started like thinking about the name we're like we had, had we've had you know different names different restaurants we've worked on that never opened up menus we're always kind of ideating things and because we wanted to have a restaurant that didn't identify with any one cuisine where we could say the name and when you say it like you say Toro people like either think you're Spanish or you're, you're Japanese fine Copa 
you know, if you know anything about food, you know, you're, oh, it's Italian. Yeah, got it. So, like, well, what, what kind of name could we come up with? So, like, we were, like, talking about that, and we were in a design meeting at Peter Nemitz's office one day, and uh, Celine, Ken's wife, was there, and she's like, Ken said little donkey yesterday. And I was just like... That's genius. You know, we started talking about what are donkeys. They're a companion animal, the original companion animal. They're in every culture, from every civilization. They're hard workers, but they're not threatening. Like when you look at a like, look at a donkey, you don't like have you don't invoke any sort of emotion. Most people say, "Oh, look at that donkey!" You're like, "Oh, look at that donkey!" It's kind of like it's serious. You you know a donkey can work hard, but you also know it's kind of goofy. And I'm like, I'm a donkey. Like I'm like and like we wanted a restaurant that would be that to the neighborhood, a workhorse restaurant restaurant that could be serious, that could still be fun, that didn't identify with one culture. So I could say, you know, hey, Ken, we're putting on, you know, monkfish biryani. And he's like, yeah, and I want to put on that caviar sandwich I made you at my apartment last week with the Martin's potato roll and whipped butter and caviar. And like, oh, yeah, and let's do a tartare with popovers. So it's like a play on Yorkshire pudding. And he's like, oh, yeah, let's do tuna poke, but we use Korean Korean ingredients instead of, and it was just like, okay. So we took, we opened up a restaurant that's basically like, we, we've cooked a long time and we know the rules. We know the rules of a dish. We know how it's supposed to be. And then we opened that restaurant so we could break every fucking rule and just do whatever we want. We have a plancha. We have a wok. We, you know, we were getting in awesome chow foon noodles and doing like vegan black bean chow foon and that had like dry fry style, like Chinatown style. It, you know, was fun and interesting. And I don't know, just, uh, just became like, it's a canvas to do whatever we want. It, very, very expressed by travel. And like, Ken and I, like, if you came over to my apartment right now like well you're in my apartment right now but if I was going to cook for you it would be fucked because I don't have any food but if I did have food <laughs> you'd be good bananas and all of them um, but if I did have food like this, that's what Little Donkey is it's the kind of place where we would be like alright let's just like yeah let's start off with some raw oysters let's have some this let's have some that and like yeah. it could be anything you know kind of like I look at my, my, my cookbooks which are like everywhere here and I look around and you'll see like you know just looking over there you see like the complete collection of Time Life books from the 70s that are awesome and then you look up and I've got I'm working on a collection of all the art culinaires since number one um, I've bought I've only had to buy like 10 of those on eBay like the older ones a lot of them I've had just from having bought them over the years and like when you look at them you see a Japanese Tsukamono book and then you see a taco book and these old Charlie Trotter books and then a Koreatown book sitting next to a foie gras book sitting next to Chris Cosentino's awful good book and the Vietnamese book and the Great Chefs of France book and Edouard Loubet's A Chef in Provence book and then Eric Freshon Taste Sensations and like you know Patricia Wells cookbook about bistro cooking in France and like that's what Little Donkey is right. it's, a, it's like if we took a cookbook shelf and fucking threw it on the ground and uh, just did all the recipes that we thought were cool so you've done or been a part of you've written one book and been a part of couple other books right like primal cuts you were in yep and staff meal book the munchies book yeah, yeah there's yeah. a couple food and wine books like cooking like a weeknight meals food and wine book that one came out really awesome do you like that process because you you're very well one thing that we've always you know connected with is like food literature nerds um how was the process of like actually getting all of that stuff that you've been following and looking at for so long to like actually making it real so like writing a book is like it's like saying 
saying I'm a mar- I'm like a I'm a jogger, and now I'm gonna write a marathon. I'm gonna run a marathon, right? Mm-hmm. That's what writing a book is. Um, and the process in which I decided to do it was like saying, all right, I'm gonna go from being a casual runner to running a marathon, and instead of training, I'm gonna slam my fucking foot in a door. That's what writing a book is like. All right, <laughs> I love it. Uh, what other stuff do you have going on right now, or like what are what are you working on? Taking time off, man. Yeah, yeah. We, we're working on a couple other cool, couple other cool things in Boston. I've been traveling a lot. Like what you said earlier about the last five years has afforded us some awesome opportunity to travel. Um, the more, I mean, you know how it is. The more, the more shit you do that makes people know who you are. The more shit people want to do with you that makes people know who you are. So we've got to do dinners and events and travel, and it's been great. And I've gotten to see parts of the country that I never thought I would see. Like I got invited. Now my thing is when somebody I don't know invites me to an event, I I look at like, all right, I don't know that chef. They invited me to an event in another place. That's super fucking flattering. I I automatically want to say yes. But I also know my bandwidth, and I know that I really like sitting at home on a day off like once in a while and like just like chilling out. So I'm like, how am I going to find the time to do this and not like burn myself out? So then I'll be like, okay, great. Um, I don't know the chef, so I look up the chef and say, all right, that person's like-minded. I understand why they want to meet me and we want to work together, you know, vice versa. It's going to be cool. But then I look more importantly of, have I ever been to that part of the country? Mm. And that's a big factor on like saying, oh, yeah. Or do I like that part of the country and how often do I get there? And that's when I say yes. So, like, I want to go somewhere. Like, I'm going to Bentonville, Arkansas this summer to do a dinner. And uh, it's an SOS dinner. There's a bunch of different chefs. And I'm just like, I'm ecstatic because I don't know fucking shit about that place. Yeah. When we opened up in Dubai, the first time I went there, I, like, was running around. Like, wow, this is cool. Now, people who live in Dubai, and when I get there, like, who've lived there for like five or six years from like London for instance I was hanging out with these guys and they're like oh have you tried this place I'm like yeah I've tried that place it's good have you tried this place or what about this bakery you know it opens up at two o'clock in the morning and you can get fresh bread from two o'clock in the morning to five o'clock in the morning and then there's a place across the street that's open so you go get the bread and you can go across the street and they'll take that bread and they'll turn it into something for you and and they're like we've lived here for 10 years and you know more about our city than than we do because I learned that from Ken when you get somewhere hotels or hotels are for sleep and recovery and your feet are for exploring and like Ken very much so is the kind of guy who does research online on anything he'll use anything from TripAdvisor to Yelp to Google Maps to just writing like things in Google and searching over and over again he's obsessive which I think you remember and then we get somewhere and he's like oh oh, I heard and like he'll say things with like such authority like oh I heard of this place it's awesome and you're like oh who told you about it he's like well I Google searched it and it had a lot of good reviews and like anybody else in the world saying that you're like roll roll your eyes but what I've learned about Ken is yeah you, you may have some duds you may like go search out and find somewhere and you know go find this the best Cuban restaurant in the best Cuban restaurant you've ever been to in, in like Bangkok and you get there and it's not a very good restaurant at all but on the way there you walk by a hundred other things that you didn't know about and that's what I love so my my whole thing now is that I want to bring that like love for other cities back to Boston and I want I want to either be a part of or help curate or just I don't know I mean I'm not the I don't know everything obviously but I've got, I think I've got a better point of view now on other like cities and food that I want to help other 
I want to help Boston be fucking awesome because yeah. it's my favorite city in the world. I want to welcome other chefs into the city the way that I was welcomed into New York for sure. Right. Um, and as far as being a part of new stuff, like whatever, man, like, yeah. like I'm down. Like if somebody's like, if somebody came to me tomorrow and was like, hey, we're doing this really cool food hall. Let's do, you know, something in it. I'd be like, fuck yeah. Because yeah. I love, like I'm even, one of the things that I pioneered within our group, like in, within like the JK food group with me and Ken, um, was that I love takeout. Like if I have working a long day, I love delivery. I love in New York City that you can get food. Like you can get food delivered from a Michelin starred restaurant in New York on caviar, mm. uh, on Grubhub. Like people are torn about that. So like, well, you should go out to the restaurant, and really experience it. Like, well, if you're a good restaurant and you offer your food delivered, then you know what you're doing, right? So when we were all, you know, approached by caviar and Grubhub and you know, seamless and whatnot, I was like, yeah, let's do it. But let's make sure that we we pay attention. And I'm trying to teach our cooks and our chefs to care just about just as much about a food that's going on a plate to table fifty. On the patio, as it is for bar nine, as it is for order 106, it's getting picked up in 20 minutes in caviar. All that stuff is amazing. And I love your positive energy towards all that stuff because I think a lot of people now shy away from a lot, a lot of restaurant people and a lot of like cooks and chefs and stuff like shy away from a lot of those changes of instead of being excited about them. Yeah. Um, and like some of our, or even our team will be like, oh, Jamie just likes this takeout stuff because it makes us more money. So it's not about that. You know, it's, yeah, but it is changing the world. Changing like, the way people interact with food. Yeah. Does Toro have the best food in Boston? I wouldn't say no. I would say no. We've got great food. Yeah. I'm not disparaging our restaurants. Yeah. We've got fucking awesome food. Yeah. We've got fun food. But what makes Toro's food even better is the energy when you're there. That, you know, it's so crazy you say that because that's what I have written down as probably the most important thing that I learned from working there was what happens in between the walls. Like, the food is sick, like, and the food is great. But the most important thing and the reason, in my opinion, of like well, how it got to be what it is, is like it's the stuff that happens within. It's the energy. It's the moments that happen and the, the vibe that's going on within there. And the food plays a big part of it. But like mostly it was what was happening in that little room. Like that was the magic. Well, chef, and I think chefs are starting to realize that like chefs who fucking hate Yelp are dumb. If you're walking down the street and somebody says, your hair looks stupid, you're like, fuck that guy. You're walking down the street, another block, somebody says, your hair looks stupid, you're like, fuck that guy. You take a corner and some other person says, your hair looks stupid, and you're like, let me look in the mirror. <laughs> That's what Yelp is. Right. One person Maybe says my that, hair does look yeah, stupid. One yeah. person says one thing about you, whatever. Two people say the same thing about you, whatever. Third person says something on Yelp about the same exact issue, dish, service, whatever. Time to look in the mirror. Yeah. And if you're too fucking stubborn to say, well, that person's not a critic, that person's you know what? How many critics eat at your restaurant? It's like I don't listen to Yelp. They're not food critics. What's their what's their what's their you know what's their passion? How do they how do I know what gives them the credibility to say that? Yeah, if they're coming in saying that your paella is inauthentic or or that that your street corn is not as good as the street corn at some place in Oaxaca. Yeah, maybe maybe that's like subjective thing. But if somebody comes in and says that the music was too loud and everybody says the music was too loud, fucking open your ears, jackass. The music was too loud. Yeah. You know, if somebody comes in and says the server the server was rude, and you're like, you know, well, who are they? They don't know. They don't go out to eat. But 
how you know Pete Wells goes out to eat six days a week, right? How often does he come into your restaurant, right? Like, yeah. So yeah, you respect Pete Wells, but you don't respect fucking Susan G, the elite Yelpist. Well, Susan G goes out to eat four days a week, but Susan G goes out to eat at the same restaurants over and over again. So Susan G actually might have a better case study for your restaurant than Pete Wells, who right. may never come into your restaurant ever so, again. Ever yeah. again. Yeah. So like, hey. Pay attention to it, and like, and I, I think that that same thing is like, you know, people who to disparage that are, are being foolish because there's so much that we can learn. At the end of the day, it's all people, yeah. it's all interactions. Yeah, love it. What was the last memorable thing that someone else has cooked for you? I was just in Austin for Food and Wine, and we got to cook outside with a bunch of barbecue guys. And Bill Durney asked me if I would cook with him. I know him a little bit from New York. He owns Hometown Barbecue, fucking total awesome guy. And him and I ended up hanging out a lot for the weekend. But during the barbecue, he uh, he made this like Oaxacan chicken, and it was just like braised pulled chicken with like a Oaxacan chili sauce. And he heated it up in these cast iron pans over the barbecue pit so it got a little bit of smoke he had a pan of pan and I had a fucking 36 inch paella pan in between it and uh, he just made me a couple bites and I was like you know looking at his passion and how excited he was and like the food we were doing standing outside getting sunburn drinking rosé at 9 o'clock in the morning and I ate it and I was like you could taste the fucking love yeah. you know in the same day like the day before at that same pit Rodney Scott from Scott's Barbecue and Rodney's a good buddy and yeah he's awesome he's like yo hey Come here, have a rib. And it was like a grilled rib. Like he slow barbecued the rib, didn't smoke it, just cooked it over open, like you do backyard style barbecue. Cooked it for like six hours, I think. And it was like so succulent. It still tasted like the white oak that they used to, to, to make their charcoal, that they had the hopper making it to order. But it was so juicy. And it was the simplest thing in the world. Mm. And, he, and his smile when he's like, do you like it? Was make fucking, yeah. And the fact that you like that I like it makes this like so fucking memorable. That was awesome. What's the most memorable thing or food from growing up? Um, memorable, but not because it's good, was Tuesdays my mom made this noodle kugel-y type thing. She would open up like whatever cans of whatever soup and pour it over Mueller's egg noodles and bake it with cheese. My uncle my uncle dubbed it gross me out. <laughs> it started, him saying that out loud one time made my dad laugh, and my dad's like, Joan, you hear what Will said? Will called this gross me out. And the next thing you know, my other uncle and I are eating in the bathroom because a food fight's happening and my mom's losing her mind. Um, so that was always a memorable one. <laughs> That's pretty good, for sure. Um, what's the what's the thing, the last thing that you've cooked that was memorable or something that you were particularly proud of? I love cooking staff meal, and you know that. Mm-hmm. And I made, so it was one day at Toro Boston, I was on the line that whole week. It's about a, about three weeks ago. And uh, I could just tell that the front of the house was, uh, we were just getting, it was like one of those first warm days of the year before we got the second round of snow. So like we had opened the patio, it was busier than we expected. It was the end of the night and everybody was just like, <sighs> and our good friend Joby from Mulaney's had come in and done a demo and left us with a bunch of free free fish to like cook up. We served some of some of it like he's like I'll use it for some some specials, but the rest of it he's like use it for staff. So I was like all right. So I took these fish and uh, I took the smaller ones and I 
took the, most of the bones out of them and we just cooked it down with like I took a mortar and pestle and we, we made green curry and um, I made this fucking huge batch of like coconut green curry with like whole whole grilled fish in it and next to it and like uh, like a samtam type thing with like green papaya and rice and then I, I you know I'd, say I'd run earlier in the day to Chinatown I bought some rice noodles and I made this steamed rice with fish and like hot sauces like like all homemade like Thai style knock chums and things and then this huge fucking like six inch hotel pan of coconut green curry fish with like I went and got like chayote and all the different like choys and stuff like that like showered it with fresh herbs and fried shallots and fried garlic and the rice noodles and then cut up a bunch of limes and put it on the side and chiffonated like kefir lime and like bashed the shit out of some some Thai basil and lemongrass and the mortar and pestle and like started in the beginning and finished with the end and I put it up for staff meal and two of the two of the girls uh, that work at Toro they're both from uh, from Colombia uh, one's a server one's a back waiter they've worked there forever one of them I've worked with her her family for 15 years like she's only like 22 but I've known her uncles and her, her brothers and whatnot and they come over and they're like we hate it when you're here I'm like what like staff meal we hate it when you're here and I was like why and it's like in my mind I was like proud it was so good and they're like because the food is so good we're getting fat and I was like <laughs> and I was like that was like that like backhanded compliment was great and like you know when you make staff meal in like a you know six inch you know hotel pan full hotel pan and it's like gone in like you know a minute you're like yeah, yeah. so we made this one in that fucking even deeper one that like yeah. the 12 inch like yeah, yeah, huge yeah. fucker and usually you make it in that and then you've got staff meal for days because it's much at the end of the night everybody's like can I take some home can I and I was just like of course you can like yeah. for me that was like I was really proud that like and the staff was like really excited about that it made me happy Jamie thanks so much for taking the time to chat fuck yeah uh, and hopefully next time you're up I want to see Scotty T I know Does he still got it he's still got it oh, yeah. uh, he's still got it and there, he's still throwing down at the diner awesome. he's still every everything still Sick. going yeah alright All right. thanks a lot Scotty T, that's my dad. Jamie wants to see you. We got to go and hang. We got to go to one of the restaurants. Um, I know you're listening to this, so um, there you have it. Um, Some things that stick out after, you know, hearing more deeply of his story. Like I hadn't heard any of that stuff when I worked for him, but I can so clearly see how all of those kind of like early things led up or, you know, created the leader that he became um, from that early stuff and in working in more corporate settings with like developed a respect for maintaining quality with speed and volume. Like that's Toro, Toro cranks, and they're still able to maintain a super high quality while pumping stuff out. Um, it's amazing. So again, Thank you very much, Jamie, for sitting down, taking the time to chat with me. I know you're super busy all over the place, so I really, really appreciate it. Um, Thanks a lot for listening. And next week, we have another very special guest. It's going to be, I don't know if I should say it. Should I say it? Okay. It's the writer. He's another James Beard Award winner. 
He writes for Outside Magazine. He's written six books, won a ton of awards. Um, it's the writer, Rowan Jacobson. And I'm super excited to share our conversation with you guys. So please tune in again next week. Please share this with some friends if you like it. Please subscribe, all the things, whatever it is you want to do. Uh, just listen, like it, spread positivity, cook some food, connect with some people, and I'll check you guys next week. 